Hello, everyone. I'm John Montoya. And I'm John Parings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the Strategic Whole Life Podcast. Episode 95, The Fifth Option, our interview with Walter Young. So today I am really excited to share uh, with you uh, my friend, colleague, Walter Young. He is the co-author of an incredible book called The Fifth Option. Walter, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good morning. Appreciate being here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to first start off with a five-star review that I read last night on Amazon that I think does a, a very apt job of uh, just describing uh, what you did with this book. So here it is. The fifth option is a great book that helped me understand my options for a strategic retirement. I come from a marketing and project management background, so financial concepts are a new language for me. The beauty of the book is that it helps provide information through a story of a real couple, and real is in quotes, and their journey into financial well-being. If you have no background in financial planning, you'll be able to understand everything, exclamation point. This book prepared me for my next meeting with my financial advisor, filling my head with ideas and questions I never thought to ask. The insights of the book are mind-opening, easy to digest, and applicable regardless of your starting point. I find myself recommending to my friends who want to make educated decisions about their financial future, in quotes, exclamation point, read this book. And I couldn't agree more. I, I couldn't agree more, Walter. Th this is an incredible book. I've recommended it to uh, clients that I work with. Um, it, it's a must read if you are trying to plan uh, for your retirement. And that's, you know, in addition to what we teach here on the podcast with Becoming Your Own Banker, th this was a really eye-opening read for me and we've done joint work. And what what you teach, I think, is something that people really uh, need to pay attention to. So Walter, um, let, let me turn it over to you. And uh, what can you tell us about yourself and um, maybe what what inspired you to write this book? Yeah. So Appreciate you asking the question. I really appreciate that review. I hadn't read that one yet. So uh, it's just always, you know, it's always fun to, to see what people you don't know, how they how they interpret your work. So that's fantastic. So so I kind of started my journey in the early 90s where I got into financial services right out of college. Uh, and then I transitioned into going to MBA school. Uh, and during my MBA school, I was working at a small company that needed help kind of organizing its finances and its, you know, just kind of the financial structure of, of the company. And so part of, the, part of the impetus to going to MBA school is that I would learn how to do this for this company, right? Because we didn't have anybody in-house that could do that. And so as I was going through my MBA work, I realized I could take this exact lesson from the night before, bring it into the, to my job, right? And help organize the company. And then I realized I could take this to my home and do it it's the same way and realize that, you know, finance to a large degree is the same, whether it's, you know, in a corporate world or, or in a personal world. And, and so... And I, I exp explain to people that personal finance and corporate finance, although they share the same word finance, actually manifest themselves in different ways. And I think that can be a challenge for individuals because at the corporate level, we know finance really revolves around profits and cash flow and the movement of money, right? We would go on CNBC, we see CFOs bragging about their cash flow and returns to shareholders. We don't hear them talking about their balance sheets. But on the personal side, it's really more focused on balance sheets, right? You sit down with a financial advisor and it's always how much, how much, how much can you save? How big can you get your balance sheet? And I joke with people that you can't take your 401k statement into any, any grocery store 
and buy milk with it, even if it says a million dollars on it. You have to take a balance sheet and eventually turn it into cash flow. And the more efficiently you can do that, the better off you're going to be. And so there's some very good lessons we can learn in the corporate world that we can bring to the finance world or to the personal finance world so that we can learn how to act more profitably and really have a cash flow centric financial planning as opposed to a balance sheet plan. I think in the book, I joked that a, a balance sheet plan, I call that BS, right? Uh, it's just a BS right. plan. We have to learn how to, have to learn how to add in the cash flow component of it so that I can have a really healthy retirement, which I think is safe, predictable, and plentiful income for as long as you need it. So that's been kind of my passion and, and the emphasis behind writing this book. The book actually comes from a lot of the academic world, white papers that are actually mind numbing if you try to get through them. And so the idea was to take some of this really high intellectual thought and turn it into a story that could be accessible to the average person. Like I'm one of the mere mortals too, where you know we get to the point of retirement, we need every dollar to act as efficiently as possible so we can enjoy our retirement. And that was really the goal of the book. And uh, so far the feedback has been really tremendous. Yeah, and I love uh, I love that joke. the The BS retirement plan um, kind of stole my thunder there because I was going to ask you next, uh, w- what is this BS retirement plan? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But- I think you know the, the idea is that you know two people could have the same balance sheet, right? We could both have a million dollars, and if your million dollars spends at forty thousand a year and mine spends at seventy thousand dollars a year, I win, right? And that's simply just a function of understanding how to turn a balance sheet into cash flow. But you don't get that. By default, you have to take certain steps to unlock better cash flow into retirement. Otherwise, you do kind of get pigeonholed into you know the safe withdrawal rate, the four percent rule kind of style of thinking uh, that most people you know have. And so you know and that's where I think a lot of the frustration exists is how do I how can I do better than that? Uh, and that's what the fifth option is about. Yeah, exactly. And how did you? Um narrow down or, or come to uh, the decision on the title of this book. I, I think it's uh, aptly named uh, the fifth option. Um, maybe you could tell us about the, the first four options and how yeah. you got to the fifth option. Yeah. So, so when you sit down with a financial planner traditionally, right? And, and, and I grew up in this world too. Traditionally, you sit down with a financial planner, they project how your assets are going to grow if you save and you get returns to the market. And then the question then becomes, well, what can I take out? How much money can I take out each year to live on? And so we know that most financial planning revolves around the 4% rule, right? I don't know how much we want to get into the 4% rule, but back in the 90s, there was a study done, and lo and behold, after a lot of research done, uh, it turns out that 4% was about the max you could take out during every 30-year period since 1926 and not run out of money. And so that was kind of the, 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 the rule of thumb. But the problem is that some people will look at their assets and realize that the 4% rule means a really small income, a smaller income than they were hoping for. And so when they talk to their financial advisors about, well, what can I do to improve my situation? They'll give you four what I call frustrating options. The first option is we'll save more money. Well, we know that saving more money always helps the situation, but it's not always easy to. And one of the other things, John, that makes it interesting is if I save more money now, I might be uh, robbing my current lifestyle for a future lifestyle, right? So we have to understand that there's two lifestyles that are always at war with each other, my current self and my future self. And so we have to, everyone has to come up with a balance of what their savings capacity that feels good is. And if you can save more money, fantastic, but it's not always an option. The second is, well, then we can start to try to increase our rates of return, right? So we can have more money at the end of our retirement, but that involves taking more risk. And most of our uh, people that we work with as we get closer to retirement are actually looking to reduce risk. 
not take on more risk, right? Because the volatility can be very uncomfortable. The third option is people might say, I'll just work longer, right? I'll just work till I'm 65 or 70. Uh, and, and that certainly is an option, but not always does our business let us do that, right? This doesn't mean that the company will say you get to work here till 70 and not always does our physical bodies allow us to work until we're 70, right? So that's not necessarily a, a given that we can do that. And the fourth option is when people really capitulate to say, you know what, I'll just have to live on less. They, they take on this kind of defeatist attitude or scarcity mindset. Or just, and, and when we start conversations, we're always asking what are their financial goals, what are their dreams at retirement? And what happens at the end of this conversation is they start telling me, well, I guess I don't have to tra travel as much as I wanted to, or maybe I won't go out to dinner as much. And they start taking away from retirement because they realize that that 4% rule is so limiting. But the good news is there's a fifth option, right? Which is the name of the book, which is a way to transcend those four frustrating options to improve the withdrawal rate scenario so that you can get more income out of the same dollar, right? And that's an efficiency metric that corporations really take, take advantage of understanding how to, how to drive efficiency from dollars, how to drive better cash flow from dollars, that when we instill those same principles, we can actually get a better retirement even though we might save the same amount of money. And that's where that, that fifth option came from. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of your book is the desert island problem. And mm -hmm. this, is, uh, this is a problem that uh, people have uh, when they're trying to plan for retirement. And the goalposts keep on getting pushed out further and further. And I, I love the way that... Um, you uh, put this in the book, um, the the desert island problem. Maybe you can share a little bit about that with the audience. Yeah, that, yeah, it's one of my favorite parables we came up with. The desert. Everyone has to solve the desert island dilemma. Everybody does when it comes to retirement planning, no matter how wealthy or not you are. And the desert island is simply the desert island dilemma. Simply goes like this: Imagine you find yourself washed up on a deserted island, and as you look around the island, you realize it's just you. But luckily, you see at the shoreline a barrel that's floating. And you run down to the, the, the shoreline, you pick up the barrel, you bring it up to the beach, you open the barrel, and you smell the sweet smell of fresh water. And the thought hits you suddenly that this might be the only water you have on the island. And as you look around the desert island, you realize that this is the only water you can drink. And so the question starts to formulate in your mind, how much water can you drink each day? Well, in order to answer that question, I might have to answer two additional questions. The first is, how long am I going to be on this island? And so when you look around the island, you recognize there's no ships, there's no planes overhead. So you might be on this island for a while. The second question you want to answer is, will it ever rain? And when you look up in the sky, it's just a blazing sun. It doesn't rain here very much. So if you don't know how long you'll be on the island, and you don't know if it will ever rain again, how much water can you really drink? And when I ask that question to people or in, in groups of, of people, the answer invariably comes back as little as it takes to stay alive because I have to ration this water for as long as it takes and I want to make sure I get rescued. But now let's change the scenery and say instead of being on a desert island, that I'm in my office celebrating my last day of work and my boss gives me this barrel and this barrel instead of water has all the money that I have for retirement. And on the way home, as you drive home thinking about your barrel of money, the same question hits your mind. How much money can I spend each day so that I don't run out? Well, you would ask, want to ask two other questions, very similar to the desert island, which is, how long will you live? I can't know that answer. And what return will, your, will the markets give you on your, on your money? You can't know that answer either. 
So if I don't know how long I'm going to live and I don't know what rates of return I'm going to get, how much money can you spend? And you see the parallel that for most people, they realize, yeah, probably as little as I need to because I have to make this money last. And so the idea is that if we don't have the ability to answer those two questions, then we start to live out of a scarcity mindset, which is really the 4% rule. The 4% rule is a small withdrawal because we are anticipating a potentially long life and variability in the markets. And so the idea behind the fifth option is that we can answer those questions. We can put some stakes in the ground of being able to say, I can have an income that I can is protected against longevity. I can have an income that's protected against variability. And when I do that, my confidence level grows when it comes to retirement income. We all know our, you know, our, our a parent or a favorite aunt that has plenty of money that doesn't spend a dime because they're just so worried about what happens next year, right? And as we go through life, we realize we look back on retirement and we didn't get to take advantage of the things we could have done. And as some people in the financial industry joke about that, if you don't fly first class, your children will. And that's all because we don't have this ability to understand how to answer those two questions. And that's, I think, the two most important questions when it comes to retirement planning. So the kind of the, the, the industry story is if you're getting on an airplane and the airplane and the pilot got on the airplane and said, hey, congratulations, we're all going to Hawaii, but we have an 80% chance of getting there. Most people wouldn't get on that flight, right? And now I know that, you know, in, in reality, you know, the, the pilot will make some adjustments and things, right? So it's not kind of stark. But, but the point of the story is that when we have this low predictability or if we have this probability-based sense of retirement saying, hey, you know, you have a 20% chance that or 80% chance that you should get through retirement, that's a one in five chance that you don't. So if you're having a dinner party with five people, it'd be interesting to see which one of these people is going to die broke or may not even make it to that point. So the idea is that we don't have to sell for low probabilities of success. There's no reason why you shouldn't have a 95% chance or better of having the income that you want for as long as you live. And the 4% rule really limits us to that 80% as chance. You may see on commercials, you know, financial planning commercials, you have to be really quick to see this, but you'll see like a graph that they show about your income and, and lifetime of income. And you'll see in the corner sometimes an 80%, which is the probability that this will happen. And so for some of us, we would like to have a higher than 80% chance that our retirement dreams are going to be sustained. And so that's what we work towards is really teaching clients that you can do better than a probability-based retirement plan. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I fly to Hawaii, I want to make sure we actually land. So that, that, that's where your expertise comes in and, and making sure that people get to where they want to go. Uh, I found it really interesting because I'm a history buff. Um, page 47 of the book, you, you give a, a timeline on um, the, the history of pensions. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that um, a pension is, you know, for, for the most part, it's, uh, you know, my mom retired with a pension, but mm -hmm. few people nowadays retire with a pension. And I'd like you to discuss that a little bit in, in the idea about um, bringing in this type of pension-like planning into what you share in your practice. Yeah, I think it kind of starts with the idea that we are, you know, for the, especially that, you know, maybe our generation and younger, uh, we are really back at the same kind of retirement strategies that were in the 1900s. 
And what I mean by that is if we go back to pre-industrial revolution, most people were in some sort of um, apprenticeship and masterclass uh, arrangement where you, you maybe you were a cobbler or maybe you were some sort of, a, a, and you had an apprenticeship and you gained skills by working with someone that was a, your mentor. And in the early 1900s, there was no retirement, right? You worked, you know, as soon as, as, we, as the industrial revolution came in, you became a cog in the machine and you worked hours and hours and hours. And life expectancy wasn't even that long. So there was no idea that I was ever going to one day retire right off into the sunset. You either died on the job or you moved in with your family or became an award of the state. But slowly, these ideas started to come into, into fruition, which was in the late 1800s, uh, American Express came up with the first private pension, which really was an ability to try to attain, retain and attract employees, no, no different than it is today. But it also had this other trade-off, which gave a little bit of dignity for people that left the workforce, the ability to have some sort of an income stream. And it was a nice way to say goodbye to some of the aging workforce and give them some sort of, of ability to, to have some income. But again, life expectancy was so short, it was not meant to be this long, uh, long pension system as it is today. And then as the 30s came around, we introduced Social Security, where we gave another safety net to the public at large. And over the course of the next 50 years, pensions grew substantially. Social Security became part of our retirement uh, linguistics. And then whatever money you could save really became the third leg of what we call the retirement stool. So in the old generations, you had pensions, Social Security, and some savings. And quite frankly, if you paid off your mortgage and were fairly debt-free, that generation could ride off in the sunset and have a decent retirement. And as longevities began to grow, more pressure starts to show up, right? We understand that pensions have to pay out longer than maybe than expected. Social Security, of course, has its own challenges into the future. And so this new generation of folks that are working are not going to have some of the financial tools the previous generations did. You're going to be more responsible for your own financial outcome than any generation pre-pensions, right? But with the one caveat that you're going to live a lot longer. And so the idea is that the latest thinking from the American College of Financial Services, a lot of these white papers that are coming out, is that we can recreate a pension-style retirement plan privately. That we, we can assemble the tools, the products, the, the, the philosophies, the math, to create our own private pensions. I call it Pension 2.0 where we can create a custom pension, right? And one of the things that we graduate when you leave a job is you get whatever pension they get, right? Well, for us, we can actually create levels of pensions, levels of guaranteed incomes, level of, of money that will last as long as we do. Uh, and we know that when we create these pensions, there's a lot less anxiety. We also know mathematically from research that people with pensions tend to live longer, right? There's something about having that predictability of income, the, the less anxiety, something to look forward to, uh, changes some of the longevity that we actually enjoy. So beginning to understand how to recreate some of the tools that we enjoyed in the past, I think will certainly help future generations retire. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where I think we can segue into uh, the importance of life insurance in this type of planning, because um, as you put it in the book, modern retirement planning equals stressing and guessing. Um, but when you start to add actuarial science, life insurance products into the mix, now you are able to uh, give yourself more income options. And options in any form is always a good thing. Why wouldn't you want that for your retirement? Well, we're talking about pensions here and, and you know, a pension 2.0. Well, how can 
listeners do that um, when when you know putting together a strategy for their own retirement. Uh, I, I think you you nailed it with your book. Um, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about how you uh, recommend the the marriage of let's call it Wall Street and the life insurance industry. Yeah. So the life insurance, the insurance industry in general, uh, has the is the only place where we can go to get what's called actuarial science. And actuarial science is a long study of how long people live, right? And in fact, it was one. It has its roots in uh, Haley's Comet. You know, the founder of Haley's Comet was one of the first people that actually brought actuarial tables into fruition, where we actually have a sense for life expectancy of how long people will live. And the benefit of the, the insurance world is they can they can actually pool people together. And when we get large pools of people together, then the insurance company can say, we think the average life expectancy of this pool is 83 or 84 years old. And so they can pay these large payments to these people, knowing that if they live longer than that, they are subsidized by the people that die before. And so what's really challenging when we sit down with a couple is we have to establish their life expectancy, right? If we knew when they were going to die, you know, financial planning would be simple. But the reality is one of them or both of them could live well beyond life expectancy. And so if we don't use the pool, then we have to pay them smaller amounts to be able to protect the assets in case they live a long time. So one of the benefits we get by pooling together is that when we live longer, we get what's called a mortality credit, meaning the people that die before us actually that are able to give us this subsidy for the people that live longer. But one of the things that we want, have to understand is that in order to plan for this, we know that you know every, every product has its pros and cons. So if I want to buy what's called an annuity, that annuity is a payment until I die. Well, the insurance company can pay me a much larger payment because they don't have to worry about whether I live past life expectancy or not because the pool of people on average will be accurate. But those annuities might pay out substantially more than the 4%. And so I could maybe purchase a six, seven, eight percent annuity for as long as I live. Now, one of the challenges is if I pick the highest annuity choice, then I have to understand that just like Social Security or some pensions, when I die, that income stops. So I have to create a tool to protect against that potential outcome. And we do that with life insurance. So if I marry life insurance and an annuity together, I get this higher payout than a safe withdrawal rate. And if I were to pass away early, my spouse would get all the money back that I gave to the insurance company so that, that my spouse can now choose what to do with that money. Or if I get what we really want and we both live a long time, then my children are refunded all the money I gave to the insurance company. And I think it can be a very elegant way of getting more income from the same dollar and a way to protect my legacy. Lots of people, when we talk about legacy, are always trying to decide, what do I do with my children? And, and we'll always get the conversation of, well, I'm going to spend mine first. If there's anything left over, they can have it. And that usually comes from people that don't have any sense for how retirement income is going to work. And that's because they don't know, well, I have enough. But when you begin to deploy the ability to, to use Wall Street and insurance together, I can generate better income streams and provide the legacy that ultimately we would love to do for our children if we can. Uh, and I think, you know, so that's one of the, the strategies in the book. It comes from the old pension maximization strategy where someone would leave a company like, you know, my neck of the woods, like a Boeing, they would have to choose their pension payouts. 
And if they chose the highest level of payout, that would give them the most money. But when they die, there'd be no money left over for the spouse, right? That pension would disappear. So a lot of those people then would take a smaller payout because they wanted the income to persist as long as, as their spouse would live so that both of them were covered. But that reduction is really just an insurance premium, isn't it? Right. It's, it's the, it's the, that reduction is, uh, you know, is, is like paying a life insurance premium. And you think about four outcomes to a pension. One is I can live a long time and my spouse dies before me, in which case I wish I took the highest payout. Or we can both live a long time, in which case I wish I picked the higher payout. Or if I die early, or we both die early, the kids don't get anything, right? The only time where taking the lower payout works is if my spouse outlives me. That's the one scenario where I would have to guard against. But the other outcomes means I took less income over my lifetime. So if I bought a life insurance policy that protected my spouse, then I could choose that higher payout so that the other three choices, if one of those manifested itself, then I had the better income all the way through retirement. But if the one instance where I, I predeceased my spouse happens, I protected my spouse. So we're taking that same concept and just doing it privately when we don't have pensions anymore. And that's what pension 2.0 is all about. Yeah. And if there's one word I can think of in my experience and working with you and what you bring to the table, it's the efficacy of what you do. In fact, that's probably um, my favorite word um, that uh, you kind of reintroduced to me in your planning. It's just how impactful, um, not, not so much how much a person is able to save, but how they save it. And you know, a lot of people in my experience, when they're in their late forties, fifties, you know, maybe even early sixties, and they're trying to plan for a retirement income, they're, they're trying to sock every last dollar into their 401k and IRAs. Um, that, that may not be uh, the best choice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's, if you think about the four options, that's the first option of saving more money. That's brute force retirement planning. Right? That's just trying to get as big a balance sheet as I can because I don't know how it's going to spend. And it's also relying on a 4% withdrawal rate or maybe even less depending on, on kind of interest rates. And so when we, when, we, when we think about efficiency or efficacy, we want to understand how do I get dollars to spend at the highest level with the most predictability? And we understand that Wall Street is tremendous for growth. There's no question that Wall Street could be a great growth vehicle. But at a 4% withdrawal rate, it's not a great distribution tool. When I can get distribution options on a guaranteed basis in the 6, 7, 8 range, that's a lot more distribution per dollar. But I have to make plans for that to work. I don't get those choices by, by a default plan. I have to do some proactive planning along the way to unlock these other choices that exist. And that's the message that we really want to get to our clients is you don't have to make the choice of how which one of these strategies you're going to use. But you do have to put in place tools that give you those choices today. It's too late when you get to retirement to say, I want to have certain choices because you didn't plan for those. So as we're in that 40s and 50s, like you said, these are the time where we can really begin to understand the full array of financial tools that we can put in our financial plan that give us the most choices because we won't know in 10 or 20 years what that's going to look like. But as you said, choice, having choices is better. We could always have the 4% rule, right? We could always do that. But we can, might also open the door 
to maybe six, seven, eight percent distribution choices if we plan ahead. Yeah, and I think most everyone uh, would like to have that option of you know six, seven, eight uh, percent versus four percent, maybe. Right, I think that's true. And and the older we get, the more people start to feel that you know that desire to have that predictability. But we gotta we gotta train our younger selves to be thinking into the future enough that when we get there. And our, our future self looks at us in the mirror and says, you did a good job, John. You put together these tools that really gave me these wonderful choices. Thank you. As opposed to someone saying, you know, we thought we were doing it all right, but my safe withdrawal rate just is as much as I'd hoped. Yeah. And, and that's why your book is so important, because people need to be aware that there are other options out there and better options um, just other than, you know, what they have been, you know, saving to that point or the strategy, you know, the 4% rule, you know, it just, it's, it's kind of industry standard and that's all people know that, uh, you know, your book really, for me, it's, it's a, uh, must read because it elucidates these other ideas and gets your, your will spinning that, well, you know what, maybe I don't have to work as long or as hard. Um, you can be more strategic with how you save, not where you save. Um, you, you mentioned in the book, um, the beat the bear strategy, and there, there's a couple strategies um, in the book. And I, I really want people to to read this book. So I, I'm just going to limit um, our discussion to the beat the bear strategy sure. um, and allow people, hopefully uh, they, they uh, um, are motivated to go out and buy the book and, and read about the other strategies. But can, can you share with us... Um, however briefly um, or not, uh, the, the beat the bear strategy that you write yeah, about. The beat the bear strategy is pretty simple, which is, all right, if if I like the markets, right? Some people are very comfortable with markets and they may always be comfortable with markets and they want the markets to be part of their retirement plan. Then one of the reasons why the 4% rule is so restrictive is that we have to be very careful about taking money out in a negative market environment. So, right, so we, what we have to learn is that an average rate of return is not indicative of the sequence of returns that go into that average, right? So the way I kind of explain with people is if I have a a bucket of zero degree water and a bucket of 200 degree water, and I put a foot in each bucket, on average, I should be comfortable, but really I have two unhappy feet. Mm -hmm. And so what I want people to understand is that the sequence of return risk is going to dictate how well your money spends. And the 4% rule was there to guard against the potential for negative returns right out of the gate. Lots of times you could have spent more than 4% over a lifetime because the markets may have been in your favor, but you'll never know until your last day how that went, right? So, and the most important parts of your retirement are the first few years or a large downturn and then a withdrawal to, to pay for life expectancies is the fastest way to run out of money. And so the beat the bear approach really is a way of saying, okay, I need to navigate negative markets, especially out of, the, out of the gate. If the market's negative, I want another pool of money that's not correlated to the markets so that it didn't go down. In fact, maybe it was guaranteed to go up. So that when the markets are negative, I could turn to a second bucket of money and pull up my expenses for that year, allowing the markets to recover. As we look at negative markets, usually there is a good recovery. It just takes a year or two. And what we're trying not to do is accelerate the loss of capital just because we got unlucky with some negative markets. So by having this pool of money in reserve, 
I can actually tend to take more money out of my investments because I'm not having to play the game of, of, of getting through negative years with my investment pool. And so that actually does allow us to have a healthier withdrawal rate with similar risks, as long as I have this non-correlated asset uh, that, that's in the sideline. And life insurance cash value is one of the best places for that because it has a competitive rate of return. It's a tax-free rate of return, meaning I don't have to take out as many dollars to satisfy my income because there's no tax consequence. It, of course, comes with a death benefit. It has all the benefits that life insurance brings, long-term care, protections for creditors, all those kinds of things, makes it a very good tool for a beat-the-bear approach. Yeah, absolutely. And and for listeners for the show, they're, they're already learning about uh, whole life insurance policies and the incredible value and benefits. And the, the interesting thing for me after reading your book is that th- this is a way that like, if you're already practicing infinite banking and you have a pool of policies, y- y- you already are in a sense, um, a step ahead of the curve, right? Because y- you have access to this pool of capital where you can, um, you know, before even reading this book, you actually have the ability to apply this beat the bear strategy. But once you realize you have the strategy um, in your back pocket because you had uh, the forward thinking to plan and capitalize these whole life policies, um, it, it uh, leads you down a road to, well, maybe I should capitalize a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is where an, appoint- uh, an appointment with someone like yourself really makes a whole lot of sense because you can run the numbers and say, well, based off your, you know, your current situation and where you're saving money, you know, you can be more efficient here. And this is what your options um, could look like uh, compared to, you know, the situation now. So for, for all the listeners out there, I I know you come to uh, IBC because you want to control your banking function and a host of other reasons that Nelson writes about in the book. But when it comes to retirement income planning, um, there, there really isn't a whole lot of um, information out there on, on how to use IBC and these whole life policies to create more options for income, uh, which is why I recommend your book so highly, Walter. Um, so on that note, um, I, I do want to recommend to all the listeners out there, um, in order to further your education, you know, of course, read Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. But also when it comes to retirement income planning, you really need to pick up a copy of Walter's book, The Fifth Option, and learn how you can marry the, uh, the, the concepts that he writes about in his book with what you're doing um, in establishing a portfolio of whole life policies and practicing being your own banker, because uh, ultimately you want to have as many options as possible in retirement. And you want to have the ability to generate that pension 2.0 that, that you talk about. Um, Walter, on that note, um, wh- what's the best way for listeners to reach out to you if they have yeah. questions, want to learn more? Yeah, I think a couple of ways. One is they can visit my website, which is uh, the fifth option.com all spelled out. Uh, but I'm also happy to entertain, you know, conversations. You can email me at Walter at the fifth option.com all spelled out. And, and as you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's really fun just to run numbers and just say, here's, here's the course you're on and here's some other options that you may or may not have thought about and just see kind of how you react to that. 
I think you know people with life insurance policies are already one step ahead of the game, but they don't always know how else to use them uh, as opposed to just the, the infinite banking concepts. And, and so we might be able to help them unlock other strategies that they didn't even know existed with their life insurance policies. Absolutely. And that's phenomenal. So Walter, thank you again for uh, taking your time to to be here on the show and uh, definitely look forward to chatting with you again soon. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, John.